Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, August the 10th, 2022. It is currently 7.18 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And I'm sorry if I sound distracted because I was watching, uh, well, some notifications coming in on my iPad as I was trying to do the introduction. But welcome, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Again, it is Wednesday, August the 10th, 2022. It is now 7.19 p.m. Central Time, and I'm still coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And I hope that what we are about to do is going to be interesting. I hope it's going to be fun. I hope it's going to be beneficial. I hope it's going to be exciting. I don't know if we're going to accomplish any of that. This is one of those situations where we are about to enter into the unknown, and I have... My attitude is not optimistic. My attitude is this is getting ready to be very, very bad. This is getting ready to be a train wreck, but I can't avoid it because I've set myself up for failure. And so I'm just going to have to experience the failure and you get to participate in it. Does that sound, that doesn't sound exciting. I know. What a way to start a podcast episode, right? Welcome everyone. This is going to be a really bad episode, but I'm so glad you are going to continue to listen is that that's not how you're supposed to do this. But the reason this is about to go very, very, very bad in some ways, I I guess the reason it's going to go very, very bad is because, can I say this? Because of the state of the local church in the United States of America. Is that fair? Is that, is that being too harsh? No, you see, I I think there's a problem in many churches, and the problem is in many churches, it's not so much what they actually say behind the pulpit, it's what they will not say. It's what they will not discuss. It's what they will not talk about. Now, maybe I'm going to be proven wrong here. Maybe I'm going to be proven wrong, but looking at the information that's available to me, I, I feel pretty confident that I'm going to be proven right. I want to be proven wrong. But I feel like I'm going to be proven right. So let me try to let me try to explain. In many churches, what they say, you cannot necessarily look at it and go, well, that was apostate, that was horrible. That you you, you but what you can't so in other words, they they don't say anything that's full-blown apostasy. They don't say something that you can just immediately say, that's not even Christianity, that's false teaching. We've got to flee this church. In many cases, it, they you, the, the churches don't say something to that level of wrong. But there's so many things they won't say, so many things that they avoid that in reality, it makes the church dangerous. It makes the church actually harmful to one's spiritual growth. And that's really, that's a frustrating situation to be in because if someone goes, well, what do you think about my church? It's hard to look at them and say, well, I'm not going to really criticize greatly what's being said. My criticism is what's not being said. Your church is dangerous because of what it doesn't say. Try to convince someone of that. They'll just look at you like, you're criticizing my church because of what they don't say. And then they're just going to look at you. You're, you're a jerk. You're judgmental. You're, they're, they're almost going to condemn you for doing that. But, but what you're trying to say is what they're not saying is harmful to you. 
Because there are things you need to hear. There are things you need to understand. Remember, the purpose of the church is to equip Christians for the work of ministry. And that equipping should continue until the people in the church are no longer children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Well, if you're going to try to let them be so equipped, if you're going to try to equip them so they're no longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, then the church has to talk about every wind of doctrine. The church needs to be the place where you talk about the difficult issues, the hard questions. The church needs to be a place where people can be very open and honest going, man, that book, the book of Job, that's, that's some hard stuff to try to wrap my mind around. There's some things there that just make absolutely no sense. You have to be willing to ask the hard questions, struggle with things that are difficult, struggle with text that are very controversial. And there's been all kinds of controversies surrounding the text for 2000 years of church history. And you've got to be willing to acknowledge it, but not just acknowledge it, You've got to talk about it. You've got to say, well, you know, what do we do here? What do we do here? And, and be willing to do that. But so many times, no, no, we'll be, they'll be like, well, there's some controversy here, but it's really quite simple and just kind of gloss it over so that everyone in the pew thinks that everything just is so simple and so easy until they get confronted with the real world and go, wait a minute, wait, so no, wait, no, no, wait. That's a problem. Wait, that's an issue. I never thought about that question. I never thought about that. And then, then they feel like they've have a crisis of faith. They feel like they're losing their faith. Next thing you know, they're on TikTok deconstructing, and it should have never happened because they should have been confronted with all of these issues in their church. It, it just blows my mind when you know you every year when school gets ready to start, we'll get all of these articles on all these Christian websites. You know you know, how to protect your kids when they go off to college, how to protect their faith because they're going to be confronted. And and it's like, I don't understand. Why do you need to do anything special to, when they get ready to go off to college? If they've been in a decent church, there's literally nothing they should hear at college that they haven't been confronted with sitting in the pew. But maybe if churches did more than just shove pizza down the teenagers' throats and give them lock-ins and pizza parties and fun and games, maybe they would be actually equipped. But no, 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 no. It's always just moralism. Don't do drugs. Don't have sex. Don't do this. A lot of morals without really struggling with the issues of the faith, struggling with issues about you know, the sovereignty of God and the, the, the reality of evil and, and scriptural issues and textual variants and, and the formation of the canon and, and the inspiration of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture and, and questions about, uh, you know, the, uh, about Christian history and about all the horrible things that's had so many issues, but no, 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 nobody wants to talk about any of those things from the pulpit because, hey, we got to keep it positive. We got to keep it moving. We got to keep it uplifting. We got to, we, we've got, we've got a, it, it's like our methodology is more important than ministry. It's the methodology. We got to keep it positive. We got uplifting. We keep it moving. We got to make sure that sermon is over within 40 minutes. We've got to do this. And instead of like, Hey guys, we're coming to a passage and it's extremely difficult, and we may have to spend about six weeks on this. Nope, nope, don't do that. People are going to get bored. It's got people. You're going to get bogged down. Don't keep it moving. And I, I, I get so bothered. So I think what we're about to see is exactly how the local churches, the average local church, the average American church. I'm not saying all. The average 
well, they deal with certain issues, all right? And the issue that we are focusing on is one verse in the Gospel of Mark, one verse that's caused people who care about Bible interpretation all kinds of problems for many years, and it led one individual, one individual to completely question the accuracy and trustworthiness of the New Testament, and not only to start questioning it, to ultimately renounce Christianity. And that individual is Bart Ehrman. One verse in the Gospel of Mark caused him to go, forget it. Done. Done. Now, the thing is, why was it at when he was in a, a school setting that he was confronted with this? Why was he not already confronted with this in the churches he attended way before he ever got in school studying the Bible? That, see, that's what bothers me about the story. He should have been confronted with this in his youth group. He should have been confronted with it in the pew. He should have been confronted with it because no one should avoid it. But churches never want to deal with the issues. And so what happens to churches is it's not what they say. It's what they don't want to ever talk about. I mean, you hear that all the, you have to preach at a seventh grade level. No, I don't. I can preach at any level I want to preach at. And you say, well, the people won't get it. Well, guess what? It's my job to help them get it. It's my job to say, come on, I'm, I'm going to come down there with you and we're going to sit here and work through this until we all get it. And no matter how complicated the theological issue is, no matter how complicated the historical issue is, we can figure it out. Stop acting like your people cannot figure it out. I hate that. I hate when, when people say, well, the people can't understand that. Who are you to say what people can understand? Stop treating people like they're incapable and start treating people like they are more than capable. Now, some people won't be willing. That's different. They're not willing. They're going to go find a church where maybe it is dumbed down and that's okay. But there should be at least one place in every city where, nope, we're not, we're not dumbing anything down and we, there is nothing we will not talk about from the pulpit. Let's do this. That, there's got to be a place for people like that. And well, I try to make this podcast a place like that, that we're willing to deal with issues. So Mark chapter two, one verse. Here's the story. And the introduction or the introductory section to read this correctly, in the introductory section of his 2005 best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus. Don't do, I don't know if you remember back in 2005, misquoting Jesus. Everyone was talking about the book. Uh, the author, Bart Ehrman, he was on NPR. He was on all kinds of news shows, misquoting Jesus. What did Jesus actually say? Does the Bible misquote Jesus? Does the Bible accurately represent what Jesus said? Or is it filled with misquotations and wrong ideas? And, and is it no longer trustworthy? Right? Remember that, all of the discussion about that? Yes? Now, some churches, they would talk about it a little bit just to say, Bart Ehrman is wrong, he's wrong, and just trust the Bible and not actually engage the material in any meaningful way. I remember taking our, our teenagers from my church to a debate with Bart Ehrman. And I remember as we were driving there playing uh, debates of Bart Ehrman, and I was trying to explain to the teenagers how Bart Ehrman typically wins the debates because the Christians agree to these topics for the debate that he's going to be able to destroy and, and try to explain that. I won't go into all of that. Every time I say that, Christians lose their minds. And I'm like, you're not understanding. <laughs> it's not that I agree with Bart Ehrman. It's that in a debate, 
you've got to really look at what you're debating because you may either be, you can either prove it or you cannot prove it. And Christians sometimes agree to something that we can't ultimately prove. And well, that, that's a whole different discussion. But let's let's go back to this. In the introductory section of his 2005 best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus, Bart Ehrman pointed to one verse in the Gospel of Mark as being the reason for him renouncing his belief in the divine inspiration of Scripture and eventually leading to his abandonment of Christianity entirely. One verse did all of this. What verse? What verse? Well, if you heard part one, you know what verse. The verse was Mark 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 26. Mark chapter 2, verse 26. Mark 2, verse 26. Now, I'm going to open up my Bible to the King James to Mark 2, 26. Now, this is what it says. How he went into that, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says this, Mark 2, 26. How he went into the house of God in the days of, now an individual is named here, and the name of this individual is so important to all of it. Now, in part one, I said his name like five different ways. So, tonight, I'm not going to leave it up to chance. Here you go. The name of the individual mentioned in Mark 2.26 is the na- this individual. Abiathar. 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 I've said Abiathar, Abiathar, Abiathar. I've said his name all kinds of different ways, but now we know that it's actually Abiathar. I still will probably say it a hundred different ways. That's okay. Abiathar. That name. Now, and and in some ways, I'm kind of got. Now, I could tell you, I could pretend that I kept saying the names all kinds of different ways because I want you to remember Abiathar. I want you to remember Abiathar because if you remember the name, then you will always remember the controversy about this name. See, if I, if I play around with the name and say it all kinds of different ways and make a big deal about saying it different ways, then you'll always remember Mark 2.26, Abiathar, Abiathar. The controversy is about Abiathar and Mark 2.26. That's the controversy. If, I, if my messing up the name inadvertently leads to you never forgetting the controversy, then by all means, make me out to be a fool, because if I can, you'll never forget this controversy, then guess what? I've accomplished something. My fool, me looking like a fool is a small price to pay if you like Mark 2.26. Oh, Abiathar. Now, that guy from Texas, he said Abiathar, Abiathar, Abiathar. He said it so many different ways. I, I'll never forget Mark 2.26. If, if, that, if I accomplish that, then I've, I've done something good. All right, so let's read it. Mark 2.26. Again, remember, Jesus is speaking in Mark 2.26. This is why this is so important because it's not just, just the, the New Testament writer. This is supposedly the words of Jesus. So Jesus is speaking, and we'll go back to verse 25 for context. So Jesus is speaking. He's speaking unto the Pharisees. He said unto them, have you never read what David did when they, when he had need and was and hungered, and they went, and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the shoe bread, 
which is not lawful to eat, but the, uh, but for the priest and gave also to them, which were with him. He mentions that this event takes place during, I'm sorry, if you heard me turn away from the mic, I just realized it's getting really dark in this room. And I realized I didn't turn on the light. <laughs> so, but, but I'm going to have a time, I'm going to have an opportunity to turn on the light because I was trying to read this. I'm like, I cannot see these words. Okay. Cause it's getting dark and I forgot to turn on the light, but now I'm live on the air. So we'll, we'll figure this out. Okay. I may have to use my iPad. Okay. No, but here in a minute, we're going to be reviewing some audio and then I can turn on the light. But all right, here we go. We read it again. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. So Jesus retell or recounts a story dealing with David and that it happened in the days of Abiathar. All right? Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because when you go back to the Old Testament account of this story, it's not Abiathar, it's Abiathar's father, right? And so, according to Bart Ehrman, this was the beginning of the end. This is where everything begins to burn down, and he questions the validity of the Bible. Now, let me go read everything from the beginning here. In in the introductory section of his 2005 best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus, Bart Ehrman pointed to one verse in the Gospel of Mark as being the reason for him renouncing his belief in the divine inspiration of Scripture and eventually leading to his abandonment of Christianity entirely. The verse was Mark 2.26, a saying of Jesus narrated by the evangelist in the context of one of several episodes of conflict with the religious authorities. In this case, the broader context, 2.23-28, concerns a dispute over the actions of Jesus' disciples in picking grain on the Sabbath, which appeared to the Pharisees to be in violation of the Torah. In response, Jesus appeals to the action of David in 1 Samuel 21, 1-9, Uh, as both a precedent and justification, concluding with pronouncements on the purpose of the Sabbath about his own Christological identity and authority. And his reference to David taking the priest's showbread during his flight from Saul, Mark has Jesus saying that David's actions took place in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. Ehrman noted, Bart Ehrman noted, in this verse, what many before him have observed, namely that in the text of 1 Samuel 21, the priest interacting with David was Ahimelech, the father of Abiathar, and not Abiathar himself, who would only later become high priest. After attempting to develop a solution to this problem, Ehrman came to believe that Mark was in error, and in his words, the floodgates opened. Ehrman concluded that the text of the New Testament was untrustworthy and has since continued to propagate that message that you cannot trust the New Testament. It's not trustworthy. All because an individual by the name of Abiathar He's mentioned in Mark 2.26 by Jesus that David had this encounter during the time of Abiathar, the high priest. But when we go to 1 Samuel, which seems to be the uh, Old Testament, the Old Testament telling of the event. No, 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 no. It's not Abiathar. It's Ahimelech, Abiathar's father. Now, you may be saying, 
I don't see the big deal. Well, the big deal is either Jesus was right or Jesus was wrong. Or, and you don't want to say Jesus was wrong because he's the eternal son of God. That would destroy his deity. So then you have to argue, well, then Mark and telling the story, he got it wrong. Mark made a mistake. Mark thought that's what Jesus said, but it's not what Jesus actually said. Well, that destroys the inspiration of the New Testament. In other words, no matter where you go, you're going to find yourself in some kind of problem. So I have right here from a theological journal, a very academic approach to trying to figure out how to answer this. Many commentaries will just tell you there is no good solution. But instead of going that direction, I came up with this great plan, right? Well, you may not think it's a great plan. I came up with this great idea. You know what we'll do? We'll just choose random sermons from the gospel of Mark. I mean, as ran, just, I, I, I gave three apps for everyone to use. Sermon, the sermon.net app, the sermons 2.0 app, and the Edify Christian podcast app. Just go on there, go Mark 2, find the first sermon you can find and send it to me. Now, a couple of individuals sent me sermons. I'm very appreciative of that. Some of them did not necessarily follow the rules, but I, I can't control the rebellious people of my audience. No, I, I, I mean, I, I like people using those apps because I just like that there's the Edify Christian Podcast app with like 2 million Christian podcasts. There's the Sermons.net app. I don't know how many different churches and ministries are on there. Sermons 2.0. I just like people using those apps because it's a, it's a source of spiritual food 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Some good, some bad. But, well, Sermons, sermons 2.0, at least the confession of faith is good. The others don't have that. But I like people having those apps on their devices so at any time they can just go to one of those apps and look up a sermon or just see what new sermons have been posted and just listen. I, I like people doing that. So that's one of the reasons I wanted people using them. But I just wanted to find the most random sermons we could. I didn't want us to go looking for, oh, here's a sermon where they spent an hour trying to answer the problem of Mark 2.26. No, I just wanted to see if we just walked into an average church on an average Sunday and they were preaching on Mark 2, what would they do? Because I'm, I think that in many cases, they're either not going to mention the problem or so just skim right over it, zoom right past it, that it leaves the average Christian not equipped, not prepared to deal with skeptics out there going, oh, you believe the Bible is trustworthy? Well, what's the issue with Mark 2, 26 and Abiathar? It wasn't Abiathar, it was Ahimelech. It, the New Testament is not accurate. And then, you're, and then the kid, you, the young person who... I don't know how to answer it. You should be like, man, I've already heard that in my church 50 times. It's not that controversial. Now, maybe it is controversial, but the point is everyone in the church should be equipped to deal with it. And so it goes back to my major thesis. The church so many times is guilty, not because of what they say, but because of what they do not do to prepare people. So I don't need, I, I think... I think the sermon that I have currently in front of me, I think it came from the Edify Christian Podcast app. I just I just started trying to look for anything in Mark chapter 2. And this one is a 36-minute sermon. <laughs> Supposedly covering 28 verses. Because I think they 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 I think they're going to try to cover I think they're going to try to cover the whole 
chapter and one 36-minute sermon, which already just tells you <laughs> probably everything we need to know. I could be wrong. Now, remember, one of the things I don't do is I don't listen to it in advance, right? Because if I listen to it in advance, then that really destroys what we're trying to do. So who knows? I, I think according at least to the scripture reference, that it's Mark chapter 2. I could, I mean, who knows? I don't know what we're getting ready to hear. That's the fun part of this. That's the nerve, that's what makes it nerve wracking. And it's what makes it can be a disaster. But I want us just to imagine that we're, we're out driving on a Sunday and I'm like, you know what? Hey, let's just stop at that church. And we're going to walk in and lo and behold, it's Mark chapter two. So they're sitting there, we're sitting in the pew and they're like, today we're going to be and we're going to continue our series in the gospel of Mark. This Sunday, we're in Mark chapter two. And I look at you going, Mark two. And I punch you in the arm, right? Mark 2. Come on, Mark 2. Mark 2, 26. Abiathor, Abiathor, Abiathor. And you're like, shh, be quiet, man. You're making a scene. No, no. Are you think they're going to, come on, $50, $50. Are they going to talk about it or not talk about it? Yeah, that's, I know you're thinking, I don't want to ever go to church with you, but I'd be like, come on, come on, $50. Let's bet. Come on. I'm not promoting gambling. It's just, I'm just trying to set up the scene, okay? So we're saying, like, aren't they going to talk about it? Now, if we were with other people, other people like, who's a Biathor and what, who cares? I care because I want them to cover it. So I'm, I'm rooting that they're going to cover it. But I, I don't even know what they're going to actually do here. So th this may be an absolute waste of time or think of it this way. Even if they don't really cover the Abiathor Ahimelech issue. It still may provide us some context and give us some information about Mark 2. Maybe that will help us. Maybe it won't help us. It can't hurt. So are you ready? Let's review. Let's analyze. Let's critique. And let's just consider how the average church, I don't even know where this church is. I don't, I don't even remember the name. It's just, it's not about the name. It's not about attacking anyone. It's not about trying to embarrass the church. It's just about, hey, we're, we're, we've got this question about Mark 2.26. We're just going to let the average church try to answer it. And then you can ask yourself, why is it that they don't deal with it. Now, may, I could be wrong here. Maybe there. Again, my, my suspicion is we're not going to hear about the problem or we're going to briefly hear about the problem. Let's see what we hear. Here we go. All right. Good morning. Will's like extra fired up this morning because this is Aaron C. Show weekend and he loves the Aaron C. Show. So they were out there, you know, I don't know, watching the planes, I guess, yesterday. So there you go. Uh, Hope Women's Centers, man. I mean, that's a ministry that we have supported as a church for years and years. Uh, I don't normally say this, but I mean, I'm just going to say it. It's a, it's a ministry that Beth and I support personally, financially. Uh, and it is also a great opportunity to support somebody out of our own church. So uh, Joy Wright, who is the new executive director at Hope Women's Center, uh, is actually with her husband, Jay. They are amazing people. You need to get to know them at some point. I'm, I'm hoping they can somewhat remain anonymous. But nevertheless for their sake, but really, like, they're a part of Rio, and, uh, and they are doing a phenomenal job, and she's doing a phenomenal job leading this ministry. So uh, take advantage of that, as Will said. That's a great, great opportunity to pour into something that is actually really priceless and precious here in this community. All right, so last week, we started a study of the Gospel of Mark, that is to say, of the account of the life of Jesus that Mark gives to us in what we call the book or the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that Mark spends the first full half of his book just talking about who Jesus is. So that's why we're calling it Mark, the identity of Jesus. When we get to the second half, it's going to be Mark, the mission of Jesus. 
So it's like he's coming and going, look, we're going to talk about what he's come to do. We're going to talk about his mission and all that he's accomplished and all that he will yet accomplish. But before we do that, I've got to establish with you, Mark says, who Jesus is. And today, as we advance that argument and we come to Mark chapter 2, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Jesus is the one who alone, and that's the word to circle, can forgive sin. And I want you to know why. Okay, so we're going to get to the identity of Jesus, and he wants us to see that in Mark 2, Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. That's all right. Now, again, this may be a situation. Everything they say may be perfect, may be wonderful, and may be biblical. It may come down to what is just ignored. Maybe they're not even going to get to Mark 2.26. Maybe they're not even going to cover it. Now, some churches will do this, okay? I, now, this drives me crazy. We're going to study the gospel of Mark, right? And so it looks like in week one, they covered Mark chapter one, verse one, or they covered chapter one. And I, what I, I bet they did is they didn't actually cover verse by verse the whole chapter. They just grabbed one or two main points from Mark chapter one. So there's a possibility that in Mark chapter two, they're not going to, we may not even get to the verse in question. But this supposedly is a sermon on the entire chapter. So you would have to at least acknowledge 226, which is one of the most controversial verses. Well, you could talk about the ending of Mark and all of the controversy surrounding the ending of Mark, Mark 16. If you have a study Bible, you'll notice they'll say in some manuscripts, this like none of this even actually belongs here. We could get into a whole discussion about that. But you would think that they would have to at least acknowledge it, but maybe they won't. But a lot of churches do this. You know, we're, we studied the book of 1 Corinthians in six weeks. I'm like, really? That was a study of 1 Corinthians? You studied 1 Corinthians in six weeks. Really? How could you claim that that's a study of 1 Corinthians? But that's, that's the way so many churches do things. Where you can have your, as some people would argue, you spent four years in 1 Corinthians. That was ridiculous. And some people would actually criticize the churches that spend that much time. Well, the other churches will criticize the ones who cover it in six weeks. It's amazing how people have vastly different expectations and preferences and what they get out of church. Some people don't like it. It, it feels like a seminary. I, I, that's, a, that's a criticism of our church. It feels like a seminary. It feels like a university. Ugh. Okay, well, gotcha. I understand. Uh, you know, that's, that's fine. The, the, I guess the elementary junior high is across the street. You know, it, and, and I'm not trying to say that in a derogatory way, but if you're going to criticize us, then I can criticize the other for not being at a seminary level. But here we go. So I like the idea that Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. That is a very important concept, especially talking about his Christological identity. I think that's important. But let, let's see where they go. It's because he's God. Look, as we make our way through the story that we're going to look at today, there's a certain line of reasoning that I want to point out to you in advance, and it goes like this. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. And you're like, no, no, no. Jesus claims to forgive sins. Therefore, he might be God. Yeah, just wait till we get into the story. Because he says to somebody, your sins are forgiven. And then he does something only God can do to authenticate the reality that well, Jesus is the one who alone can forgive sin. So that's where it starts. So Jesus is the one who alone, circle word, can forgive sin. But then the second part is that as a result, we need to bring ourselves and other people to Jesus. 
Okay, so making a Christological argument for the deity of Christ. God's the only one who can forgive sins. Christ forgives sins. Therefore, Christ is God. That's a good Christological argument about the deity of Christ. That de- that you can't just say Jesus was a, g- a good man. He's claiming to forgive sins. If he can't forgive sins, then he's not a good man. He's a liar and a deceiver. But if he can forgive sins, then he has to be deity because only God can, is the one who can forgive sins. So it, this is a, a good argument here. I just, I have a strong feeling we're not going to get to 226. I have a feeling we're not going to get here, but that's okay. That just demonstrates that a church can go through a series on Mark and not even cover the verse, which just demonstrates how many avoid the verse. It just follows one right out of the next. All right, so the story that we're going to look at today takes place in the little seaport town of Capernaum. I have been to Capernaum several times. Capernaum is not an active living city. People don't live there presently. It's a place that they have excavated on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. It was in the days of Jesus a very vibrant place. It was located on a trade route. Matthew, the tax collector, is found there as an example and probably did really, really well in that location. It's the hometown of the Apostle Peter. It's the hometown of his brother Andrew. But most significantly for our purposes today, it's the hometown of a paralyzed man. And we don't know the name of the man, but everybody in that town did. We don't know his age. They did. We don't know how or when he became paralyzed or for how long he suffered the state of paralysis. All those people knew everything about this guy, small town. They knew this stuff. It actually matters. All right, we don't. What we know is that he's paralyzed, and we know that paralysis back then was even more difficult in terms of suffering than it is today, and that's saying something. Paralysis, I mean, if you're just kind of going down what might be most difficult, that's got to be at or about the top of the list. And back then it was even worse. And the reason for that is obvious, isn't it? I mean, they didn't have hospitals. They didn't have rehab facilities. They didn't have assisted living facilities. They didn't have in-home nursing care. I mean, I don't mean to be overly graphic, but they didn't have handicapped bathrooms or any of the ways by which we're more enabled to be more discreet today in that regard than we were back then. They didn't have vehicles to get you around, handicap-accessible vans and buses and cars and all that. None of that stuff. They didn't have wheelchairs, motorized or otherwise. So what that means in a practical sense is that this man's life was confined to a mat about three feet wide and about six feet long. And there he lay and he didn't get out of the house at all unless or until his four buds who we're going to read about and who I really want you to focus on today. These four guys came and they would show up and then with their arms and their hands and their feet and their legs, they would transport him out of the house. And they would do that probably pretty much every day because the only way for this guy to contribute to the household income was for him to be deposited alongside a busy road and he had his spot and put out like a bucket or something that you could put money in. And then he would beg. He would ask for money. And he would lay there all day. And then to make it worse, there was a stigma attached to the kind of suffering that paralysis brought. 
And so the line of thinking went something like this, good grief, if you are suffering this profoundly, you must have really sinned big time. Like, I don't know what you did, but it was massive. And so this guy probably bought into that ideology. It's false. It's not biblical. But nevertheless, that was the general idea back in those days. And so this guy would lay on his mat day after day, night after night, staring up at the ceiling going, which one was it? Like, what exactly did I do? You know, I mean, there was a time in third grade where I pulled the chair out from that girl and then she fell like, was that it? You know, and and then I stole a yo-yo, you know, from a 7-Eleven. Was that it? Was it when I betrayed this person or when I did this, I did something really actually pretty doggone evil? Was that it? And then what's the next step in the equation? Because the the poor guy's going, man, you know, if this is how I'm I'm getting punished, if you will, if I'm cursed in this life, what awaits me in the next life? Let me give you the words that defined his existence. There are several others you could add to the list, but I made a list. Dependency, humiliation, confinement. I mean, you're suffocated, right? Boredom, loneliness, frustration, shame, guilt. You're a burden, or so you think. Despair. It's all going to change when he meets Jesus, but he needs to meet Jesus. And if you're not familiar with the story, but maybe you are familiar with Jesus, just based on the facts that I've laid out so far, you know, you're probably thinking, all right, so I guess the story is going to go something like this. Jesus is on his way into town. He's traveling down the busy road. That guy's got his spot. Hopefully it's shady. But nevertheless, Jesus comes across this guy. He has compassion on him and he heals this man. That's actually not how it goes. So then you start reviewing the other options. You're like, okay, so, um, all right, maybe what happens is somebody comes to Jesus and says, the guy is by the side of the road. Would you go heal him? Jesus goes and he heals him. That's not what happens either. All right, so then Jesus must go to the man's house because that's the only other place he is. And then that's where he heals him. It doesn't happen that way either. So what happens is that his four friends come and just like they would bring him out to the side of the road, they show up at his house. They're like, dude, we are taking you to Jesus. And why are they taking him to Jesus? Because this matters not just for them, but for me and for you. Like if you're wondering what the application is, it's going to be so clear. They come to get their friend to bring him to Jesus because A, they love their friend and B, they believe that Jesus can heal him. That there's an answer and his name is Jesus And moved by love and by faith, they're like, dude, we're bringing you to Jesus. And he's like, no, 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 I'm binge watching Stranger Things right now because season four is coming out on May 27. You're welcome. And they're like, well, the beauty of Netflix is you can pause that. So that's what we're going to do then. I find it funny when a pastor tries to say something funny and nobody laughs. I, I find it funny to listen to. I, it's not so funny to experience because a lot of times you're like, oh, I'll, I'll throw in a little joke right here. Or, or you think of it at the moment and then no one, everyone just looks at you and there's nothing worse than that you tried to be funny and you're like, man, I just, I threw in a popular cultural reference, Stranger Things. I made the little joke of when it's, I'm, I'm throwing in a little Netflix reference here. Someone say something. Okay. Now who knows? Maybe the, the microphone can't pick it up, but I just know I've been there way too many times. And you're just looking at everybody going, okay, well, that, that didn't go over so well. Now, some people were like, some people hate when pastors do that. They're like, they shouldn't try to be funny. They shouldn't try to joke. They, they should just, but I, I understand he's trying to, he's trying to 
paint a picture of the story to pull the people in. Now, there's always dangers in doing this in preaching because sometimes you can kind of so embellish the story or try to so contextualize it in a modern context that we almost turn the story into something other than what actually occurred or we give people an idea that may not be an accurate representation. It's easy to do that in preaching because you're trying to get the people, you know, you're trying to pull them into the story so you can kind of throw in some more modern references. So it's always that debate. Should you do this? Should you not do this? Some people love when pastors do it. Some people hate when pastors do it. Some people think it's embarrassing when pastors do it because it looks like they're trying to be hip and cool and re- and, and relevant. Everyone Put it this way. Everyone has their own preference. What I, again, what I care most about is if this, if this sermon, which clearly it's not going to get past verse 12, so this is not even going to get us to what we want us to get to, but, but I'm doing this on purpose. I just want you to realize that here's a church that they covered Mark chapter one and week one, and in week two, it's Mark chapter two, and then the next week, it's going to be Mark chapter three. Well, and their covering of chapter two, they're not even bothered or interested and covering all the verses, but they're saying that this is a study of Mark. It can't be a study of Mark if you're not even covering all the verses, but this is common in many churches. For some people, it doesn't bother them. For me, it would drive me crazy. I'd be like, well, wait a minute. How did we get to chapter? Th- how did we get to chapter two? We didn't even barely cover chapter one, but it, it that's the way because some people, it's got to be quick. It got to be a, got to be a six week series. Can't go beyond, maybe we can go to eight weeks, but we got to move on. We got to move on. And again, so maybe the lesson here is sometimes it's not what's being said in your church. That's the problem. It's what they won't say. It's what they don't cover. He's avoiding the most controversial section in the chapter. You know what your people need? The controversial section so that they will be equipped and not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. However, others would argue, go, no, no, no. They don't need some textual controversy about some guy by the name of uh, Abiathar, no, 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 about some high priest. No, 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 no. What they need to know is that Jesus is God and he can forgive sins. Now, you could make a spiritual argument that that's what the people need. I would say they need both. They need the Christological argument to demonstrate that Jesus obviously claimed to be God by forgiving sins, which is a claim to deity. They need that argument because they're going to run into cults that claim Jesus isn't God. So that's important. But they also need to know the textual issues in verses in chapter 2, verse 23 to 28. They need both. It's not one or the other. They need both. But let's at least let them build out the Christological argument here. And they carry him to Jesus. But when they get there, they can't get near him because they're the last ones to show up. And it's a little house. You know, when you go to Capernaum, they're just, they're little houses. You can see the the rock walls are made of this basalt rock, like they've reconstructed, you know, like part of the neighborhood, if you will. You can see the home that they believe was Peter's home, which is almost certainly where this story took place. Great argument for that being it. So, you know, they show up at the house and Jesus is in the house and the house is packed out. And again, it's, it's a little house. It's not big. And so it's standing room only inside of the house. People are crowding around the windows, you know, probably four or five deep, trying to see Jesus, trying to listen. People are crowded around the doorway and there's only one, you know, probably four or five deep and trying to do the same thing. So these guys show up with a three foot long, wide and a 
and a six-foot-long mat and their buddy. So four guys, that guy on a mat, and people are like, you are not getting in. Mark says in verse 3, he says, And they came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they gave up and they went home. And that's the end of the story. Let's pray. It's not. You imagine how disappointing it would be if it was? Oh, well, all right, then I guess we can leave. You know, like, they don't give up. Why? They love their friend, and they just feel like, man, if we can get him in front of Jesus, Jesus has the power to heal this man. Like, you know, Capernaum was the home base of Jesus, and it was where these guys lived too. So they had heard Jesus teach and preach and they had seen him, I don't know, maybe cleanse a leper. And, you know, like he had done amazing, miraculous things. The bulk of his ministry happens in the region of Galilee. And again, the center point of where he lives and stays and operates out of is this particular town. So he is well known in this town. And here's the thing. If you really believe that Jesus can raise someone from the dead, and that's what we're talking about with this man spiritually, as we'll see, but also physically. I know his heart's beating and his organs are working and his mind works just fine and his mouth works great. I get that, but he's not able to move and he is in the posture of death and he can't do anything to fix it. And neither can anyone else. No doctor, no, not even today. If you really believe that Jesus can raise someone from the dead and you, you love that person, like, and the obstacles are something you'll deal with, right? I mean, you just, you find a way is the idea. So when they encountered this obstacle of we can't get in the house, faith was like, Jesus can fix this. And love was like, we're going to find a way. And so they climb up a staircase on the side of the house. You're like, how did you know there's a staircase on the side of the house? Well, because they got up onto the roof, but also because that's the way the homes were built. So they used the roofs of these houses as patios, or really sort of like a backyard. They didn't actually have backyards. They might have like a little courtyard area behind some of the homes. You can see that when you look at the excavated ruins of these houses. But, but they would use the roof as a yard. And I want you to actually think yard, because here's how they made the roofs. They're flat roofs, and after they built the stone walls out of these basalt stones there in Capernaum, they put timbers across the stone walls, and then they put mattings of branches on top of the timbers, and then they poured about a foot thick, a foot deep of mud on top of the mattings of branches, and then they planted grass. So when they get their buddy up onto the roof, they lay him in the grass and they're standing there and it looks like they're standing on the earth because they are standing on earth. It's the way that it went. And what they do is they start digging through with their hands. Verse 4, it says that when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus And when they had made an opening large enough to drop a three-foot-wide, six-foot-long mat down through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. That is to say, they lowered his dead body, if you will, through the earth into the grave of this house where Jesus was waiting to raise him from the dead. It's like what we do with our people, our family members, people that we love when we bury them in faith in Christ. Interesting um, analogy that he's kind of creating. He's trying to create this word picture that the roof represents the earth and they dug into the earth and lowered him down as if lowering him into the grave to where he's going to be, he's going to meet Jesus and he will be resurrected spiritually. Now, you could argue 
um, about whether this is an is this appropriate or is he reading something into the text? Is the text really designed to kind of give us the spiritual picture? Is this okay to derive the spiritual picture from it? Are we placing a concept onto the text that it was never intended to demonstrate or picture in any way, shape, or form? We could have a good conversation about this. You can let me know what you think. Again, the whole goal of this was to get to Mark two twenty six. Clearly, we're not going to get there, but we're going to get as much out of it as possible because it at least deals with the chapter, right? So and we may we may review five sermons and working on, and I know you're saying just get to Mark two twenty six. No, what I want, I'm going to to go over the top to demonstrate how many times we're going to see sermons on Mark 2 and and just your average local church where they they either won't even address the issue or if if they actually read the verse they they skim right over it because i want you to see th- that the reason this becomes Mark 2:26 a problem for people who are confronted with it is because they never heard anything about it in their local church. That's what I'm going over the top to try to prove. Because I know what you're saying. Well, this is not even going to get there. I know. But remember, this church is supposedly going through Mark, and this was the week they covered chapter 2, and this is all they're covering in chapter 2. That's not my fault. That's on them. Don't get frustrated with me. You could be like, no, no, no. You could have listened first. No, that would have destroyed the whole point I'm trying to make. This is just like, hey, let's find a church covering Mark 2, all right? This week they cover Mark 2. Let's go listen. Now, remember, I was pretending at the beginning in my little illustration. I'm punching you in the arm going, come on, are they going to cover Abiathor? Are they going to cover the problem with Abiathor and Ahimelech? Are they going to deal? I bet you $50 they don't. Well, at this point, you're paying me $50 because they clearly aren't. Remember, I told you that I was skeptical that they would even cover it. And well, this because I saw the time limit. I saw that there was like a 30-something minute sermon covering Mark chapter 2. There was no way. There was no way. And uh I turned out to be right. Here we go. We lower them into the ground, do we not? In faith in the one who raises them. It's a real difference maker. But you can picture the scene in the house. I mean, Jesus is packed into this house with all of these people. And I mean, it's hot in this part of the land. And I mean, there's no cross breeze coming because all these people are crowding the windows and the door. You know, it's like, it's stuffy. The air is thick in there. I mean, the, the hygiene habits were a bit different then than they are now. So, I mean, you know, it's, there's a little bit of a scent going on. Like it's, there, it's intense. And all of a sudden, in the middle of Jesus' message, you, you hear this scratching and scraping noise coming from the roof of all places. It's like, what in the world is going on? And then little pieces of dirt start falling and little pieces of twigs start falling. You know, like dust starts coming up. These guys are taking their robes and pulling it over their nose because they're choking and coughing down there. Like the sermon is over at this point. Pastors love to do this. You just, you start building the story and building the story and building the story. And you don't know if any of what he's saying is accurate. Now, Again, he's trying to paint such a picture. It's almost like they're digging into earth to lower the dead body. So in a sense, we are going to witness a spiritual resurrection. I understand what he's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, we could have a, we could, we could spend forever debating whether you think this is good or this is, is this a right way or a wrong way? Is this, is this biblical preaching? Is this, is this the right way to do so? 
Or is it so embellishing the story that it's adding to the word of God? Like how much can you, when you're telling these stories, can you add to before you're adding to the word of God, which we're not supposed to. Some people are like, no, they're not adding to the word of God. They're just trying to help me picture it. So I, I always struggle just from a personal level. I can go back to sermons I've preached going, man, I got a little carried away there. I, I, don't, I don't think that was really, that was the best thing to do. And then other times I'm like, but the people I think really got pulled into the story and really understood. The, so I, I go back and forth. You can, you can tell me your thoughts if you want, but because obviously we're not going to get to what we want them to actually cover. So we're going to find something here to talk about. You can let me know your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, about how much you think preachers can do this and where is there a, is there a definitive line of where do you think it's right or where do you think it's wrong? All right, let's continue. And they're just like, all right, what's going on? And then all of a sudden there's like a little shaft of light as they break through the mud that comes into the dark, dusty room, and you can see the dust and the, and the light. And it gets bigger and bigger as four pairs of hands become visible as they rip the roof up, and then four muddy, dirty, sweaty faces. And they rip a hole big enough to drop this guy down, and then they drop him down, right? Handhold after handhold, four ropes. And I'm sure that people down there were like, you know, let me help steady this thing and make sure this poor man doesn't roll off. And, and then all of a sudden there is this guy and he is laying there at the feet of Jesus and he's spotlighted, if you think about it, by the light that's streaming through now this brand new massive hole in the, in the ceiling. And then what does Jesus do? Because here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't look at these guys and go, what the heck are you doing? You know, like, what is the matter with you? I'm 45 minutes into a message. I've got a clean recording going, and there's no way we can edit this out. I've got to redo this whole thing. We've got to have this ready for my podcast at 3 p.m. today. People are relying. By the way, you ruined Peter's roof. He's right now on the phone with a state farm agent trying to get somebody to come out. I got dirt in my eye, in the eye of the Son of God, for crying out loud. Like an eyelash, that's painful. Try a twig. He doesn't look at these guys and go, guys, couldn't you just wait? How about a little patience? What if you just waited for me to finish? Eventually, I'm going to leave the house. You know, there you are, camped out outside. Just all you got to do is wait, and I'll come to you. But instead, this. He doesn't say any of those things. He's delighted with their faith. You ever done that, though, like... You're feeling like the Spirit of God is going, this is the time, this is the moment. You know, you've been waiting for this moment with trepidation, perhaps. And you're like, eh, maybe tomorrow's a better idea. You know what, how about next week? I've done that. I mean, I don't like that I've done that, but I have for sure done that. When Beth and I got married, I, I was an attorney. So if you don't know the story, just forgive me. No, I've been redeemed, Okay. We moved to the city of Chicago. I started working at a law firm there. There were 35 lawyers in the firm. We had the whole 13th floor of this building. Uh, But then downstairs on the third floor, there were like two offices and a little, I don't know, waiting room basically. And because I was the new guy, I was the peon, I was the low on the totem pole guy, as I should have been, honestly. That was rightfully my position. Uh, I got put down there on the third floor and there was one other person and he was 85 years old. He was a retired lawyer. His name was Gene Goldenson. 
he had been practicing law like since Moses. <laughs> they were friends. And he was a Jewish man. And, and Mr. Goldenson, because that's all I could ever call him, he's like, Tom, my dad was Mr. Goldenson. You need to call me Gene. I'm like, Mr. Goldenson, if I call you Gene, my dad is going to come and say, what's wrong with you? So I can't do that. You're just going to be Mr. Goldenson to me, and, and that's it. Uh, but in any event, you know, one of his big regrets in life, he told me, was that he was asked to be a prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials to go as a Jewish lawyer and to prosecute Nazi war criminals. And he didn't do it. He's like, no, I wanted to get on with my life and start my practice. And he's like, I missed it. I could have done it. But he became my friend. For like two years, I went to lunch almost every day with Gene Goldenson. And every time I had a question, which was every day several times, I just went to Gene because, I mean, he had nothing to do. He came in. He was single. He was never married. He had no kids. He had a niece that he loved and who loved him, and that was great, but that was it. And so he would take the train in and out, back and forth from his apartment, and he would just come in and he would take a nap. I mean, he slept for like an hour in his chair. It was, it was unbelievable. I don't sleep that well in my this, this now, now I'm just, now all I can do here is just offer analysis and critique and ask questions about preaching because we're not going to get to what we wanted to, but that's okay. Remember, I told you this could be a complete train wreck. Remember, I told you from the beginning, so don't get mad at me. All right. But this is now, I, I, now maybe I'm wrong. We will see, but I will know I'm not wrong to bring up the question. This is always the question of Pastors telling stories and, and offering illustrations. When is the illustration or the story beneficial to the ser sermon? And when is the story or the illustration harmful to the sermon? Now, the, the whole point of this sermon is God is the only one who can forgive sins. Christ forgives sins. Therefore, Christ is God. Remember, he established that thesis early in the sermon. Okay, now so far, first, he hasn't gone to any Old Testament passages, which says God is the only one who can forgive sins, because that would be a, a key element you have to prove in your thesis, right? God is the only one who forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins here, and here's some other places where Jesus is seen as the one forgiving sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. Now, he's got 18 minutes left. He may do all of that. But somewhere now, we're talking about his, the, not Jesus, we're talking about the pastor who used to be a lawyer in Chicago who went to lunch all the time with this 80-year-old uh, 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 former lawyer, retired lawyer. And so how is this all going to fit back in to this? Maybe it's going to, but this is always the question. And, and some t so many times after I'm done preaching, I'm like, why did I tell that story? Why did I give that illustration? That actually distracted. It did not help. So pa pastors, sometimes we, it, it's just weird how you're preaching and all of a sudden a, an idea or an illustration or a story comes to your mind and you start it. And then sometimes once you start it, you start asking yourself, what is this? Why am I telling this story? What has this got to do with the text? And I, oh, I hate when that happens. So I'm not being super critical here. It's just, it is the, always, whenever you're listening to a sermon and all of a sudden they just kind of like, wait, we're talking about this story here in Mark 2. And now we've left Mark 2 to Chicago, a lawyer, like, wait, wait, what just happened? Now let's see how he, he makes this fit. Let's see how he makes it fit. My bed. 
And he would read all the new case law that came out because I don't know why he was bored. He was interested. And he had like three cases, three that he milked the heck out of. Basically, he probably did them for free. They were four friends and they just gave him something to do. And I think he came in to have lunch with me. And so, you know, so we would have lunch every day. And I remember having lunch with him one day. I could, I mean, I don't know if the restaurant's still there. This is like 30 years ago, but I could take you there. I could put you in the booth. I could show you where I'm sitting, where he's sitting. I can see it like a picture in my mind. And it was a Monday. Here's why I know that. Because he said, hey, what did you guys do in the, over the weekend? You know, because he knew Beth at this point. Like when Morgan was born, he bought us the most beautiful, expensive outfit for her. Had it perfectly wrapped. And he was so excited. It was like he was granddad. It was cool. He's like, what did you guys do this weekend? And I said, well, you know, we did this and we did this. And we went to church and we did it. And he's like, oh, well, tell me about that. So we got into this conversation about faith, mostly him talking to me about what he thinks and, you know, how he was raised and all of that. And I could feel the Holy Spirit in me saying, Tom, you need to say something to this man about Jesus, you know? And I mean, I was not like the most devout follower of Jesus at that point, but I was a believer and I was going to church and whatever. And I thought to myself, eh, maybe another time. The whole, the Holy Spirit talking to you, the whole, the whole thing, giving you some revelation that you don't get from Bible, the extra biblical revelation, talking to you, trying to lead you, just, I mean, all of the, Issues that arise arise from that theological position could I could fill up volumes of books with all of the issues that drive me crazy about this. So all right, but so is 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 I guess he's gonna connect this. See, God was trying to tell him to talk to this man. He refused to, but these four friends, they they li- listen to it. Did they listen to the Holy Spirit or did they just say our friend is paralyzed and Jesus he, he, so I don't know. Is there a parallel here? What I don't know. It has nothing to do with the ultimate thesis of the sermon, which is God is the only one who can forgive sins. Jesus forgave sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. That was the thesis established. Now it's about, hey, you better listen to the Holy Spirit when he tells you to do something. So I didn't want to do it. So anyway, we have Morgan. We moved to Florida. And then the next time that I hear about Mr. Goldenson, it's a phone call from somebody from that firm in Chicago. And they said, you know, Gene Goldenson was, had a major stroke. Um, they found him at the L station in the afternoon. He was on his way home. Uh, took him to the hospital. He's in an assisted living facility. And I said, well, give me the address, the name. I you know, wrote it all down. And I just immediately, I could see me in that booth with Gene Goldenson. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to say what I thought. Darn it, but not that word. So I sat down and then I wrote this letter to Gene Goldenson. And I said, you know, Mr. Goldenson, here's what's going on. And I remember that day and we were sitting in that booth and I knew that God wanted me to say something to you. And I didn't do it. Here's what I should have said. And just in case it wasn't clear enough, I put a tract in there. I figured, you know, maybe they say it better than me. And I put like this little pamphlet, which was basically the gospel of John. Not basically, that's what it was. I put it in there and then I wrote like a personal note. I'm like, hey, I don't know who gets the mail in this place. But would you do me the favor? I mean, I don't know if he can read. I don't know if he takes his own mail. Like, I don't know really what his condition is. I've heard it's not good. Could somebody sit with this man and read the letter to him? I want him to get this message before he dies, in other words. So I wait like two weeks. I call the place. And it sounds a little chaotic. 
And, you know, I mean, there's, you don't know who's going to get the letter or who's going to get the mail or what part of the staff you're going to catch at what part of the day. And so anyway, this woman had no idea anything about the letter. She has no clue whether somebody read it to him, nothing. So I come home and I say to Beth, okay, we got to go to Chicago because I'm going to go see Gene Goldenson. So we bought plane tickets and we flew to Chicago. We stayed with some friends of ours. And the next morning I went and I went to go see Gene Goldenson. And it was a pain. There was no Google Maps, nothing. You know, like I had to take a train and I'm it's freezing, you know, like. So I walk into this place and it's okay-ish. There was ice on the inside of his room window. I didn't think that was encouraging. And I go in the room where he is and there are two men in the room. And honestly, guys, I didn't know which one he was. So I came out, I said, look, I... I had lunch with this guy every day for two years. I, I cannot tell you who's who. They say he's the first one. I said, okay. So I kind of touched his arm or whatever. I said, Mr. Goldenson. And he woke up, and I could tell he's trying to focus on me. And, you know, I mean, I'm the last guy he's expecting to see. He thinks I'm in Florida. So I'm like, it's me, and I came to see you. And, you know, like I'm, He's trying to tell me something desperately, but because of the stroke, I can literally not understand one syllable of what he's trying to say. And I just said to him, look, Mr. G, I said, you know, I know that this is really frustrating to you, and I'm so sorry. I can't understand what you're saying. I said, but you know what the reality is? I came here to talk to you anyway, so just relax and let me do the talking. And so I start to talk with him. We're three minutes in. All of that, and then I'm starting to talk with him, and I'm getting to the... Here's why I'm here. Remember, we were sitting in the booth, and da, 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 we started talking about religion, and, and he starts to snore. <laughs> he falls dead asleep. And I panic. I'm like, what the heck? You know, like, and I'm trying to wake him up, and he... I, I... What? <laughs> All right. I understand the significance of the story to him on a personal level. I do not understand the significance of this story in the thesis of the sermon that God is the only one who can forgive sins. Jesus forgave sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. This is turning into, okay, I, I, can't, I, I hinted at a Christological argument, but this is going to turn into, hey, when you get a chance to talk to someone about Jesus, you better do that. You better be like these friends and tear open the roof and lower the person down. That is what this is turning into. And he's, only, I mean, again, you can, you can argue, you, you can tell me, is this illustration or this story that he's telling, is it adding to the sermon or is it distracting? Is it, is it helping you understand Mark 2, 1 through 12? I mean, obviously, we're, it's not going to accomplish what we wanted it to accomplish, was to get to the most controversial verse in Mark chapter 2 that caused someone to lose their faith and probably a lot of other people. But no, no we're, we're here not really even actually dealing with the text in any meaningful way. Is not waking up. Like, I'm like, you know, I don't want to shake him too hard, but I'm like, you know, Mr. Goldenson, Mr. <laughs> shaking his arm. He's out. I go in a panic out to the nurse's station. I'm like, listen, I came here from Florida. I got a message to deliver. <laughs> like, this is why I'm here. I'm just starting to get to it. He falls asleep. How long does he sleep? 
They say he sleeps 24 hours a day, just wakes up a few minutes here and a few minutes there. I said, well, how long is it between here and there? They're like, could be tomorrow. I'm like, I'm on a plane tomorrow. So I go back in his room. I try to wake him again. I sit there for a while, nothing. I try to wake him again. I say, he, he never wakes up. So I fly home. It's not how you thought the story was going to go, is it? You figured for sure Gene Goldenson comes to faith in Jesus. People at the nursing station, they overhear it. Now they're crying. They come to faith in Jesus. The man in the bed next to him gets up and is healed. You know, like <laughs> revival breaks out in the assisted living facility and none of that. That's the whole story. Didn't happen. And look. I'm a big believer, and I think the Bible backs this up, that God always gets his person. And maybe what he was trying to tell me, I don't know, but I couldn't understand it, was, hey, I got your letter. (laughs) You know, thank you for sending that. Maybe somebody else, some pastor came and visited him, some friend of his came and visited him, somebody else shared the God that caught him in his three-minute window of I'm awake. I don't know. Maybe he came to faith even before he had the stroke because somebody shared the God. I don't know. All I know is I'm sitting in a booth with this guy and I'm feeling like the Lord is saying, come on, man, I have teed this up. It is, it is there. And I passed. I don't want to do that again. I don't want you to do that. And Jesus looks at the faith of these guys. These guys didn't even think about waiting. Like it wasn't even on a menu of options. Well, so here's some options. You can pitch your tent here and wait for Jesus to finish his message and whatever. And then when he comes out, boom, you're the first people there. I mean, that would have been a pretty reasonable plan. They didn't even consider that apparently. They're like, no. Faith says Jesus can fix this. Love says we're going to find a way and we're going to do it right now. They go up on the roof, they rip it open, they lower the guy, and far from being irritated, Jesus is delighted in the faith of these men. So much so in verse 5, it says, and when Jesus saw whose faith? Their faith. He said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, see, th- another thing that's going to drive me crazy about this sermon is, is I-, I guess he really has a different thesis that faith sees Jesus as the solution and love finds the way or however he stated that. I guess it's really not God is the only one to forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. Maybe it's not even, maybe this thesis is not even Christological, but do you not realize the implication, the theological possible implications of Mark 2, 5? When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of palsy, their faith, the man who is sick, separate, their faith, the man who is sick. He sees their faith and he says to the the one of, of palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. So this raises the theological question, can my faith be sufficient for someone else to receive forgiveness? That's uh, that's a question that you would have to at least address. If I'm preaching Mark chapter 2, we have to talk about that in verse 5. We have to understand, wait, wait, what is going on? Their faith, does it mean all of them? Like, is it just their faith, but not the faith 
of the the one sick with palsy is is are as they're referring to all of them. All of them had faith. How do we understand this? I doubt. I don't. Uh, maybe maybe he's going to address the issue. He's only got like eight minutes left, so I don't think he's going to even address the issue. So this sermon is really coming down to an example of it's not what's necessarily being said. It's what's not even being approached. It's not what is even being discussed. It's not even being acknowledged. Maybe he's going to acknowledge it right here. We will see. And, you know, then a party broke out on the roof, right? These guys started high five. They're running across and, you know, chest bumping, you know, like, because this is better than what they came for. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even know that was on the table. You mean that could happen? Wow. They're high, you know, like all everybody inside's cheering. Oh, sense of the paralyzed guy, still paralyzed. You know, he's, he's excited. He's shouting. None of that happened. They didn't bring him there for that. Your sins are forgiven until the rest of the story plays out. Almost sounds like a cop-out. It's like, well, I can heal leprosy, but this is kind of intense. But wait a minute, who is Jesus? He is God. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins, therefore Jesus is God, which, by the way, also means that he spoke the worlds into being. So I'm thinking this is really not above his pay grade. Nothing is. No one is. But he's the only one in the room who knows that at this point. He's going to make it known. He's not going all spiritual on them and going, your sins are forgiven. Nobody can really verify that. And I will leave this man in his condition, but you guys should be happy with this. None of that. He is dealing with this man's greatest affliction, which kind of puts it in perspective, does it not? Because you're thinking paralysis, first century, forgiveness in eternity, the life to come, abundant life in this life. The failure to have this is the far more perilous condition. It's definitely the one that lasts the longest. It goes on for forever. Jesus says, my son, your, your sins are forgiven and nobody is happy, especially not the scribes. In verse 6, it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They're thinking around Jesus, always dangerous. They say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Why? For who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is at least claiming to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is at least claiming to be God. And so immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise? That's the language of resurrection, by the way. Take up your bed and walk. And don't answer that too quickly. Because in order to say your sins are forgiven, Jesus later had to go to a cross and be nailed to it. He is immobilized. And so immediately, Jesus perceiving in his heart, he's like, guys, why do you question this? Look at what it says. says, He goes on, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's me, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, and therefore that that I am God. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And then this man who's been paralyzed, Like he does that. (laughs) 
you know, it's not like he regains feeling and sensation and he's able to move and wiggle his toes and, and his fingers and he's able to all of a sudden, he can kind of, and then he has to go to a rehab facility and then they have to kind of work him back into shape and then he's going to walk on a treadmill with a bait belt that kind of takes some of the weight off until his legs have enough strength to bear the fullness of his weight and then eventually, I don't know, six or eight months down the road, he's able to rise and take up his bed and walk. It's just complete. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed. And they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this, I'll bet. Jesus is the one who alone can forgive sins. Why? Because he's God. And as a result, we need to bring ourselves and others to him. So let me ask you, like, what sin or sins do you need to have forgiven? Because there is a forgiver. It's amazing. And not only does he forgive it, not only does he wash it away, not only does he make you clean, he redeems it. He takes all of your failures and all of your mistakes and all of the ways that you've messed things up and somehow brings good out of them. I mean, maybe I messed up with Gene Goldenson because now 50 of you will not do that. I don't know. I just know that he takes that which is broken and he fixes it, that which has failed, and he brings success, that which is tragic. And out of it, he brings triumph. He is the overcoming Christ. So what sin or sins do you need to have forgiven? And will you bring them to him? Because he just waits for you. Secondly, what is immobilizing you in this moment? What is it that's paralyzing you, if anything? You might be, no, 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 I'm good. It could be the shock of divorce. It could be the numbness of the death of the loss of somebody that you love. It could be the heavy load of depression, the unrelenting beatdown of anxiety. It could be self-doubt or self-loathing. It could be a secret or maybe not secret at all addiction. What is immobilizing you and will you bring that to Jesus? Because I can't fix that and you can't fix that. But he's offering himself to us and he's going, hey, I'm different Thirdly, what dead thing in your life needs to be lowered down into the grave, if you will, in faith so that Jesus can raise it up again? I think that could be a relationship. It could be a marriage. It could be a relationship with a child, a son, a daughter. It could be a hope, a dream, like something that's died and that is hopeless apart from the past. Please, how, how they take this story and then just turn it into, what do you need to lower down to be resurrected? A, a, a hope? A dream? Is that, is that even the purpose of this text? But please know, once again, the issue is we have a, we have a theological issue in Mark 2. Obviously, verse 26, they're not even going to cover it. But even in the text they covered, how did their faith lead to that man having his sins forgiven? Do we, don't we have to at least discuss that, but it's not even talked about again. Once again, this is an example of a church where it's maybe not what's being said. There may be a couple of things that's being said. That's an issue, but it's what's not being addressed. It's what's not being talked about. That is the problem. Let's let him finish power of Christ. And then here's the last one. Who do you need to carry to the Lord this morning or for that matter, this afternoon, or maybe just this week? Who's your Gene Goldenson? Who is that person for you? God has given you the relationship. You're invested in the relationship. Hey, you know what? If you talked about this, they're not going to be upset with you. If I had talked about it, Gene would have gone, oh, well, that's interesting. And if he didn't want to, you know, participate, he would have said, well, that's nice for you, Tom, and let's move on. You know, like, 
At some point, I think that the people in our lives, if they have some semblance of an understanding of what Christianity is, what it is that we profess to believe, heaven and hell and all of this Jesus and salvation, if we don't say something, they're going, okay, either you don't believe this or you don't love me like you're commanded to, which is like yourself. If you think about it that way, what would you want that person to do for you if the shoe was on the other foot? You'd be like, I mean, even if I don't want to hear it, I want you to tell me about it. And the relationship's there. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm not going to be your friend after this. So who do you need to carry to the Lord this morning in prayer and then maybe in person? Go have lunch. Go sit in a booth. Don't make my mistake, really. Invite them to Alpha. Come with them. Just don't say anything if you come because you've got to understand the philosophy of Alpha. Let them talk. Who is it for you? Because if you and I really believe that Jesus can raise the dead, spiritually, physically, all of it, and we love people like ourselves, man, we're going to do it. Like we'll run into the obstacles and faith is going to go, yeah, but you know, if you can get them to Jesus and love's going to say, yeah, we got to find a way. We got to find a way. So find a way. Okay. Let's pray. Father. There you have it. We completely failed in our attempt, but in a roundabout way, we did not fail because again, this is a church going through a series on the gospel of Mark. And this was their study of Mark chapter 2. No, they did not get to verse 26. And I know what you're saying, but you should have listened to it first and we could have skipped this. But that would destroy the point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to demonstrate that so many churches that deal with Mark chapter 2 doesn't deal with the issue. And we got an example of it because in the section he dealt with, in the section he dealt with in Mark chapter 2, He literally read the verse that says when Jesus saw their faith, he doesn't identify who the there is referring to. He seemed to imply that it's referring to the friends, not to the man who was paralyzed. So when he saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. How can their faith lead to his sins being forgiven? Can we have faith to get someone else's sins forgiven? That is a theological issue that has to be addressed according to that verse. So, but he doesn't even address it. He doesn't even deal with it. He doesn't even act like that there's an issue there. But any good Bible student would be like, I've got 50 questions at this point. I've got 50 questions. But no, this is another example of how churches handle so many issues. They just ignore them. They just avoid them. And Bart Ehrman's case, clearly, all the churches he attended never dealt with Mark 2.26. He gets to his class, and he's like, I've got a problem with Mark 2.26. And he finally concludes, well, the Bible's not trustworthy, and therefore renounces Christianity. I want you to see that's how churches typically handle these controversial issues. Not all, but the we're just choosing at random. You think at some point in these random sermons, we're going to come across one that's going to be like, man, they dealt with it. They didn't avoid it. Let's see how long it takes to choose random ones. And that actually happens. We're going to keep choosing. So there's one. There's the first one. And then next time we're doing a live broadcast, which may be here in just the next few minutes, I I don't think I can go to bed tonight until we at least try one more attempt. I'm going to grab another one at random and we'll see 
if we get any closer to Mark 2, 26. There, we have to stop. We're at one hour and 22 minutes. That took a long time. And then you can, you can give me whatever you think about how he handled the text. Um, man, it, that, was, that was some... And, and please, please note, he, he came back, he returned to his original thesis. God is the only one who forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. But he didn't even, uh, he didn't even try to take that apart. He didn't bring together all of the Old Testament cross-references that clearly indicate God is the only one who can forgive sins. And then all of the New Testament references showing Jesus forgiving sins and therefore then making the Christological argument. He, he just gave us the thesis, but he never proved it, never even attempted to prove it, didn't even try to prove it, which is really extremely frustrating. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.